It's Wednesday, December 20th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A couple months ago, if you asked me, would Donald Trump be bounced from any ballots? I'd say, nah, probably not, sadly enough. But, you know, those are the rules of America, a democracy. The challenges to Trump's candidacy went down in flames in Arizona, Michigan, Minnesota, sometimes for odd procedural reasons. And that was actually the case in Colorado, where a district court judge ruled that she couldn't ban Donald Trump from the ballot or couldn't side with the plaintiffs asking to do so because it wasn't clear if the part of the law about taking the oath as an officer of the United States apply to the office of president. Is the president an officer of the United States? But for that question, which I question if it's really a question, she would have taken Trump off the ballot for insurrection. And that's what the Colorado Supreme Court did. I wasn't shocked that this decision was being mostly cheered in mostly liberal circles and mostly decried in Trumpist circles. It was the circles in between. Is this a Venn diagram? Actually, it's the opposite of a Venn diagram, where I was looking for some analysis that said, yes, as much as Donald Trump is a threat to democracy, this is no way to ensure a democracy. Such voices were not immediately forthcoming, but I did find a couple of reasonable arguments where in the actual Colorado Supreme Court decision written by three justices. Now, you should know that justices of the Colorado Supreme Court are appointed by the governor. And in this case, the governors, Hickenlooper and Polis, who appointed every single justice are Democrats. That doesn't mean that all the justices were registered Democrats. In fact, a couple who I will be quoting from weren't before they were appointed, but it really is a nonpartisan way to get good justices on the court. I will, in fact, quote from the press release surrounding Maria Birkenkotter's appointment, which was the first appointment of current governor Jared Polis. He said, quote, throughout or, you know, dictated or had a PR person say in a press release. Anyway, the sentiment was, quote, throughout her career, she has shown a keen ability to render sound and wise decisions on a broad range of issues. She has deftly presided over high profile, complicated and often emotional cases. I'd say check, check and check and has implemented beneficial operational changes within the judicial branch. So I read what Birkin Cotter had to say and it was good. She writes in a very approachable style. She starts one graph. Don't get me wrong talking about all the activity around this case. She goes on to say about other cases in which a candidate might be barred from the ballot. Three days to appeal a district court's order regarding a challenge to a candidate's age? Sure. But a challenge to whether a former president engaged in insurrection by inciting a mob to breach the Capitol and prevent the peaceful transfer of power? Yes, the justice is not buying it. Neither was her fellow justice, Carlos Samor. Quote, the decision to bar former President Donald J. Trump, by all accounts, the current leading Republican presidential candidate and reportedly the current leading overall presidential candidate from Colorado's presidential primary ballot flies in the face of the due process doctrine. He goes on. 
There was no fair trial either. President Trump was not offered the opportunity to request a jury of his peers. Experts opined about some of the facts surrounding the January 6th incident and theorized about the law, including as it relates to the interpretation and application of the 14th Amendment generally and Section 3 specifically. And the court received and considered a partial congressional report, the admissibility of which is not beyond reproach. I have been involved, the justice continues, in the justice system for 33 years now. And what took place here doesn't resemble anything I've seen in a courtroom. In my experience, in our adversarial system of justice, parties are allowed to conduct discovery, subpoena documents, and compel witnesses, and adequately prepare for trial. And experts are never permitted to usurp the role of the judge by opining on how the law should be interpreted and applied. This is a good point. This is an unavoidable point. Donald Trump not only was not tried for insurrection, which is the crime that he's being barred from the ballot because of, not only tried, he was not even charged with insurrection. And he could have been. There is a special prosecutor. His name is Jack Smith. This was an option. The prosecutor chose not to take it for reasons we've gotten into on this show in the past. He thought it would be a hard case to prove. He He thought that other cases, other charges, which he did bring, were more likely to have success in court. But to bar a guy for doing a crime that it's unclear if he did, and also he could have been charged with but wasn't, that is really serious. And even though I wouldn't defer to the someone's polling status as a reason why the law applies or doesn't, it is true that Donald Trump in this democracy seems to be the choice of, right now, most people, sadly enough. I think the dissenting justices made all excellent points. They were, they were legally forceful, though not in the majority of this particular court. And I would, of course, be shocked if SCOTUS didn't overturn the decision. I wouldn't, in fact, be shocked if the ruling were something other than 6-3. I think this has massive implications for the concept of elections and citizenry. By the way, (laughs) I'm now going to read to you someone who I guess more or less agrees with the two justices I quoted. This was Stephen Chung, a spokesman for Donald Trump. He wrote, unsurprisingly, the all-Democrat appointed Colorado Supreme Court has ruled against President Trump supporting a Soros-funded left-wing group scheme to interfere in the election on behalf of crooked Joe Biden, crooked is capitalized, by removing President Trump's name from the ballot and eliminating the rights of Colorado voters for the candidate of their choice. We have full confidence that the U.S. Supreme Court will quickly rule in our favor and put an end to these un-American, little u, little n, American, at least that's capitalized, but there's no space, lawsuits. Okay, that's an insane palaver and crazy rant. He might be right. He could have just said, how dare Colorado take away your right to vote Coloradans? You should be happy you don't live in such a state. And he muddies the waters with talking about the all-Democratic appointed court. Would have been much better for him to say, three Democratic appointed justices out of seven disagree with this. Anyway, the Trump campaign can't help but being idiotic and overblown, which may be why many left-leaning legal scholars justifiably fear a Trump presidency. But I think the truly prudent ones know the only way to assure that doesn't happen is and should be at the ballot box.
And now a special announcement. You may remember that a couple of weeks ago, I did a live show in New York City where I talked about my reporting trip that you heard pieces and reports from on the gist. I talked about that in depth for an hour. I had guests on the show, including the comedian Alex Edelman. And now you can see that entire presentation, including all the audiovisual elements, including talks with Israeli Defense Force expert Ellie Elephant and the comedian and I'm going to say anti-Semitism expert, Alex Edelman. That is up on the GIST's YouTube channel. And for directions on how to get there, if the Google machine isn't helpful, check out the show notes, share it with whoever may be interested. And now, on a similar subject, we are now two and a half months from Hamas terrorists attacking Israel and a little under two months since Israel's massive response in Gaza began. The idea of peace seems so distant as to be a mirage, but one day the bombs will stop dropping and the rockets may abate. And then what? Well, Lena Khatib, an expert on the region, especially Israel-Palestine relations, and how the surrounding nations will contribute to or detract from an eventual peace process. Director of the SOAS Middle East Institute, Lena Khatib, up next. Professor Lena Khatib is the director of the SOAS Middle East Institute. She is an esteemed expert on the regional conflict and uh, some of the specifics we're going to get into now. She is also the author, co-author of a book about activism called Taking It to the Streets. I don't know if she pays the Doobie Brothers any royalties for that title, but thank you for joining us on The Gist. Hello, and great to be with you here. Yes. So let's talk about that. Let, let me uh, let me jump, take as a jumping off point your 2014 book. We always hear that there is the Arab street. I, I hope that doesn't diminish anything and that's still an acceptable phrase. But these are the passions of the people of the Middle East. And it's sometimes contrasted with the leaders of, say, Jordan, Egypt, uh, Qatar. Is there still that divide in what the average Muslim or Arab in the region thinks about what's going on in Gaza and what the leaders of those countries do? It varies by country. Uh, in places like Qatar, I would say the population is very much in line with what the leaders are doing because Qatar has been uh, acting as an intermediary between Hamas and Israel in context of hostage versus prisoner exchanges. So to release the Israeli hostages held by Hamas in return for Israel releasing Palestinian prisoners, I would say that people in Qatar are very much supportive of their uh, government's efforts in that regard. When it comes to other places in the region, it depends. So for example, Egypt and Jordan officially have signed peace deals with uh, Israel. But right now, there's a lot of anger on Jordanian and uh, Egyptian streets about Israel's campaign in Gaza. So even though their uh, states have officially been at peace with Israel for a long time, this does not mean that the citizens in uh, Jordan and Egypt agree with everything that Israel's doing just because it's a peace partner for their country. And how much does that matter to the leaders of those countries? This actually matters a lot to the leaders. Um, 
And that is because the leaders do not want to see instability at home. When it comes to a country like Egypt, it's a really big country. Uh, People have grievances to do with the economy. So gathering in the streets, for example, to voice support for Palestine or anger at Israel means that these protests can transform into protests about domestic issues in Egypt, like the economy. And this is something that the Egyptian authorities do not want. Um, In Jordan, a lot of the population is of Palestinian descent. And again, what Jordan does not want is to see this population criticizing the Jordanian government in how it's handling this conflict. And so Jordan has been very vocal in its criticism of Israel. And this is seen in some speeches that the Queen of Jordan has given, as well as speeches that the foreign minister of Jordan has also given. Yeah, Jordan also um, canceled their meeting with President Biden when he was there, I think based on false or a misimpression, temporary misimpression about who was responsible for uh, a hospital explosion. But let's t- maybe we should take the countries one by one. Egypt, country of 110 million people, used to be the dominant force in the region. Now, of course, is a rival to Saudi Arabia and the Iranians to some extent. How much does what you're talking about, President al-Sisi, who just won his third term as president. How much does being wary of unrest within the country inform the measures they've taken to participate with Israel in the blockade of Gaza to build? uh, We see news reports that they're reinforcing the fences at the crossing towards their country. When it comes to Egypt, the location matters a lot because this is the country bordering Gaza. The Rafah crossing is the crossing between Egypt and Gaza, currently uh, the main one used for any humanitarian aid to pass to Gaza from outside and at the same time will be the main gateway where the residents of Gaza to want to kind of leave Gaza. And Egypt is worried about large numbers of Palestinians leaving Gaza and heading towards Egypt and basically staying there. Uh, This, of course, would amount to a population transfer, which is against um, international law. However, for Egypt, the concern is more about stability because it's not just ordinary Palestinians who might cross, it's also Hamas fighters who might cross. And the last thing Egypt wants is to see Palestinian fighters operating from Egyptian territory. Um, And therefore, it's uh, been, again, uh, a case of very uh, vocal uh, statements uh, heard in Egypt, mainly by the president, uh, against uh, this kind of scenario happening, saying uh, Egyptian territory is a red line. Are the Egyptians grudgingly dragged into the position of having to um, of having to erect this security apparatus? What I mean is this: Israel's sorry, Gaza is often described as an open air prison, and the fence around uh, Gaza is an Israeli initiative. But of course, you know, a large portion of that fence or the fencing is Egyptian. The blockade is enforced by Israel and Egypt. So what does the leadership of Israel think about the status of the Gazans and their contribution to it, whether open air prison is, uh, you know, an exaggeration or not? Um, I mean, when it comes to Israel, there has been an ongoing occupation and 
occupation is not just about having soldiers on the ground in a particular place. It's also about encircling a particular place and not allowing the people to move freely in or out. Uh, Of course, Egypt is enforcing its side of the border. However, if the situation in Gaza had been uh, settled according to, say, uh, the two-state solution, then Egypt would have no reason to block people from leaving. Uh, this territory, which is Gaza. And so right, but neither would Israel, right? If it had been settled according to the two-state solution. I mean, ultimately, we have to go back to the big problem here, which is the two-state solution not being in place. I think if, if diplomatic efforts resurrect the peace process, a lot of these issues that we're talking about today regarding population transfers and potential instability in, in uh, neighboring countries to Gaza would just uh, you know be lessened at the very least. Yes, I appreciate that. In your assessment, From drawing from your expertise, how much should we assign the situation in Gaza, not the war, but the the blockade, uh, call it the occupation, the fencing, how much culpability, moral or otherwise, should we assess and put on the Egyptians and the Israelis both? And how, or should we look at it like this is an Israel initiative and what choice did Egypt have? Well, let's put it this way. Um, If Egypt says people can freely go from Gaza to Egypt, they still can't because Israel won't let them. (laughs) And so ultimately, uh, power lies in the hands of Israel when it comes to the freedom of movement of the residents of Gaza. Egypt is merely securing its side of the border. But the decision to let people in and out is purely Israel's. And what about the Jordanians? Uh, Let's go back. Why haven't the Jordanians allowed Palestinians who are refugees and have been for 75 years within their country, why aren't they citizens of Jordan at this point? Well, there have been people in Jordan who have been citizens of Jordan for a very long time. Um, But that is different from a new inflow of people displaced forcibly from a place like Gaza to go to Jordan. I mean, what I'm saying is just because there are already many uh, Jordanians of Palestinian descent doesn't mean that Jordan should be expected to have the door open to just granting Jordanian citizenship to any uh, refugee that enters uh, Jordan. Um, Just like any country in the world, you know, just because the U.S. is a country of immigrants doesn't mean that the U.S. can be expected to keep its doors open for anyone uh, who wants to migrate. Uh, Kind of, you know, it's it's a different uh, uh, world right now. Um, What happened back then with Jordan when Jordan was formed uh, is, is part of history. And these Palestinian Jordanians who have been citizens of Jordan for for decades regard themselves as Jordanian. They have full rights uh, uh, like other Jordanians. Um, And it's not a solution in any case to to kind of say, okay, the solution to the Gaza uh, issue is to have people move to another country uh, that that is denying the fundamental human rights of the Palestinians in, in Gaza. Yeah, I was actually thinking more of uh, West Bank, given the uh, geography of the region. But let's move on. Let's talk about the two-state solution. Who in the region wants this and who doesn't? 
When it comes to the two-state solution, all Arab countries want to see this happen because there was an initiative signed by the Arab League in 2002, led by Saudi Arabia, that said the Arabs propose to recognize Israel if Israel accepts that there be a Palestinian state according to the borders of 1967. So that is called the Arab Peace Initiative, and it remains uh, on the table. Um, Saudi Arabia is trying to resurrect uh, the Arab Peace Initiative right now because it was the key uh, kind of broker of that initiative. Now, in terms of who in the Middle East does not want a two-state solution, I would say Iran, even though officially it may say it supports the Palestinians, but all its actions in the Middle East show that it is also trying to derail the two-state solution. And I would say the current government of Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel is also against the two-state solution. And now more and more media attention is uh, being given to statements by Netanyahu himself and others in his government saying, actually, they they do not want a two-state solution, even though they haven't really proposed an alternative. Um, So here you have it. Here you have all Arab countries saying we're ready to resume talks, the Palestinian Authority being... Uh, in that camp as well. And then you have Iran as a destabilizing actor and the government of Benjamin Netanyahu being politically stubborn. Yes, uh, I'd agree with Netanyahu. There is 1967 borders, the green line. There, the, those. I think most people who see any chance for peace look at that, broadly speaking, as uh, the starting point or where you have to start negotiating from, thinking about. But it is in the details of the Golan Heights would be pre-1967. I think Israel would regard that as a non-starter. Sections of East Jerusalem. Then you have the questions, as we know, going back to um, proposals from Oslo. You know, what portion of what what is now uh, East Jerusalem control uh, remains in Israeli hands or co-administered, say, by an international organization. In your assessment as an expert in the region, these are important things, but are these the absolute make or break details? Are is While the devil is in the details, when we say or when the Arab League passes a resolution saying, yes, 1967, are they are they hardliners about that and they will or they are advocating that the Palestinians uh, accept nothing less? I would say there is still room for negotiation if the peace process is resurrected. Right now, what Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries are trying to do is resurrect the peace process because it has been dead for a very long time. Um, Where Palestine lies in terms of its borders and how the map will look like, can be negotiated still. Um, and this is, uh, you know, a question that I, you know, I have no idea where it will lead, you know, whether it will lead to the Golan Heights being returned or not, whether it will lead to uh, some other configuration. Uh, it's an open question, but the key thing is to get Israel to accept that there will be a Palestinian state. The issue of Jerusalem, I think, is a bit more fundamental because I don't see any Arab country giving up on East Jerusalem being the capital mm-hmm. of this uh, Palestinian state. Do you see Israel giving up on that? Well, it will have to give something. 
Um, they can't control the whole of uh, Jerusalem uh, because of symbolic uh, reasons uh, for the Arab world. Uh, Jerusalem is, is, is kind of a treasure. Um, and so I think Israel will have to be pragmatic if it wants peace. Right. Um, I guess they would say, or Netanyahu would say, mm, if, if we want peace, yes, but maybe we'd rather take uh, our chances with the current state of uh, bellicosity than to negotiate away uh, parts of the country that we ourselves think are uh, historically and culturally fundamental to our identity. But it also depends on what the Israelis want. And right now, a lot of people in Israel are criticizing Netanyahu. A lot of people in Israel are blaming him for what happened on October 7th. Um, and how he's been handling um, the whole war. And a lot of people are saying maybe now is not the time to uh, call for the removal of Netanyahu. But once this war somehow settles, there will be accountability, calls for accountability for how Netanyahu has been handling the situation. So we will see. Yeah, his his popularity has been uh, cut in half, it would seem, according to polls. What do... In your estimation, the pa- how do the Palestinians define the second state of the two-state solution? So I understand the first state is uh, the Palestinian state, where they have, you know, perhaps most or all of the uh, pre-1967 borders. And then what happens with that other state? Would they be okay with it being a uh, Jewish state? I mean, the Arab Peace Initiative clearly says normalization with Israel, full stop. That means Israel as we know it, Israel as it currently stands. They have not made any conditions regarding how this Israel is run, how this Israel identifies itself, whether it calls itself the Jewish state or another kind of description is not part of what the Arabs are are kind of, you know, conditioning. All they want is for there to be a Palestinian state in parallel. But the Palestinians themselves, if you look at the Hamas charter, uh, they would contradict that. And I know that uh, Fatah's charter actually allows for that. But what do, if you polled the Palestinians or if you got a real sense of what they want, how would they define that second state, ideally? Well, so far, when it comes to the Hamas charter, that has been revised Uh, from the original charter. The original charter basically called for the eradication of Israel. The second charter still says that Hamas does not uh, recognize Israel and won't. However, it says that as a compromise, Hamas will recognize a Palestinian state. And therefore, it's it's de facto acceptance of a two-state solution. When it comes to most Palestinians, polls show that although more people seem to be supportive of Hamas right now, the vast majority actually still uh, do not support Hamas amongst Palestinians. Uh, So what we have here is who is the legitimate representative of Palestinians politically, and that is the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO. The PLO is internationally recognized as the only political representative of the Palestinians. And most Palestinians may be critical of the Palestinian president right now, uh, Mahmoud Abbas. They may be critical of the Palestinian authority that he presides over. However, when it comes to um, kind of where things lie politically, I would say the majority are still behind the two-state solution 
and the PLO as a representative. And therefore, even if they don't vocally declare support for the state of Israel in whatever configuration, there is de facto acceptance of that. And I think that is that is enough for politics to kind of move forward. That is enough for diplomacy. I'm talking with Lena Khatib, director of the SOAS Middle East Institute at the SOAS University of London. We'll be back after a short break. Stick around. And we are back with Lena Khatib. Well, it's not just the it's not just the charter of Hamas that dictates what Hamas's wants and dreams and goals are. It's what they say every day when you put a microphone in front of them and the destruction of Israel is what they say. Now, is that mostly military bluster? I you know, I take them at their word. Would you if you were a diplomat say that is true? I don't think that that's not in their hearts, but we can work around it. Well, definitely Hamas is anti-Israel. The attack that Hamas orchestrated on October 7, in my view, is a declaration of war against the principle of Israel, against everything that Israel stands for. Hamas is definitely against that. Um, And so I don't see Hamas being a peace broker in any way. And that is why the Arab countries in their proposed way forward are saying, let's extend the authority of the Palestinian uh, liberation organization over Gaza. And any Palestinian factions that are pragmatic can join under the umbrella of the PLO, a kind of coalition of Palestinian politicians. And let's have this uh, coalition rule uh, over Gaza as well as the West Bank, meaning they are effectively saying Hamas will never be recognized formally in any way as a legitimate representative of Palestinian voices. What they're effectively trying to do is merge the pragmatic voices within Hamas under this a legitimate umbrella of the PLO. And Hamas, like many other organizations, has individual pragmatists. There are some politicians who will be open to compromise, even if Hamas officially as an organization does not accept compromise. And doesn't that all, in the name of peace, argue for Israel's military strategy, which is the debilitation of Hamas as an effective force in the region? The issue is, right now, the approach that Israel is taking to weaken Hamas is purely military. When Hamas enjoys political support, uh, some emotional support amongst people who feel they have no other alternative, they feel desperate, they feel they have no other choice, and you can't eradicate that through military action. And so I think the best way to eradicate Hamas is diplomatic and political rather than military. If anything, the large-scale military campaign that Israel is launching on Gaza is causing more and more people to have sympathy for Hamas. Right. So it's backfiring. So even if Hamas is eradicated militarily, it will remain as a concept, as an idea, as a rallying cause um, for these um people who feel uh, aggrieved. And and so that's why I always say diplomacy is the only way forward. Right. But without 
military inroads to weaken them because part of their appeal is their strength, and strength is many things, but military prime among them. Without military inroads, without literally capturing, killing, debilitating their capacity as a fighting force, isn't the diplomacy that much more difficult. If they are as strong and as able to do damage to Israel, isn't it more likely they'd enjoy more support of the people than if they are shown to have been seriously weakened? And putting aside the at what cost question, just practically, the question is focused on their military strength if allowed in place would play against the goal of weakening them diplomatically. Their military strength is not their primary cause of popularity. Their primary cause of popularity is people's grievances against Israel and seeing that Hamas is just about the only avenue that could be uh, effective in the eyes of, of these desperate people. And so even if Hamas loses all its military arsenal, people will still support this idea of Hamas as a resistance force. That's well, why. the idea of Hamas as a resistance force then doesn't need to attach itself to Hamas. It's just the idea of resistance. I mean, you're an expert in ISIS. I've read you talking about ISIS, and you know where ISIS was and where ISIS is, but the weakening of ISIS as a military force also helped diplomatic efforts in working around what ISIS represented as uh, the mindshare of young Muslims throughout the world. No, it's very different. I would really caution against making that comparison because ISIS was a new phenomenon. It wasn't rooted in anything, whereas Hamas is rooted in the long occupation um, by Israel of Palestinian land. And uh, so, you know, the, the emotional uh, attachment that Palestinians have to their land, you know, there's no equivalent in the case of ISIS. ISIS had people from more than 100 countries show up and just engage in acts of terrorism. It wasn't based on any long-term grievances about land or about generations feeling aggrieved by, you know, an external force. It's a very different uh, dynamic. And so ISIS was very thin on the ground in terms of loyalty. And that's why it crumbled so quickly. Whereas when it comes to Hamas and the Palestinians, um, the issue, as I said, first is that when people feel desperate, they will cling on to whoever they think is uh, there to uh, air their grievances to the world. And Hamas has capitalized on that. Um, but if you give these same Palestinians an alternative that represents their political voices, they will take it. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the issue is how do we weaken Hamas? The military route can only work in circumstances where it's targeting Hamas fighters only without mass civilian casualties. The problem right now is Israel's campaign is causing huge humanitarian catastrophes in Gaza, where we're seeing, you know, more than 10,000 people killed, almost 20,000. And uh, this is, you know, gonna just make people angrier uh, in that region. Yeah. So, um, so the military issue, if it had been just Hamas versus Hamas, uh, uh, sorry, Hamas fighters versus Israel, would have been much, much easier. But yeah. that's not what we're seeing. Right. If they aligned themselves in World War One or maybe civil war battles right across from each other, uh, that would have been an easier fight for sure. It wasn't going to happen. So just. 
a morally or just from a pure strategic standpoint that argues for Hamas's tactics of integrating themselves within the population and using human shields being very effective? Well, I mean, this is the thing. This is the dilemma that, uh, you know, everyone is is now facing. Hamas is operating in a very densely populated area, which is Gaza. Even if they wanted to isolate themselves militarily from the civilian population, it's physically very difficult to do that. Um, And so I personally, of course, I'm very critical of Hamas's actions on October 7 because that was an attack that should not have happened. Um, Nothing justifies the mass killing of Israeli civilians. And Hamas did that in the name of resistance and liberation. And a lot of people, um, you know, supported it. However, very shortly after, these same people who supported Hamas began incurring very big losses They were losing their homes because of the Israeli retaliation. They were losing their lives, their loved ones, and they continue to lose. And so now we're beginning to hear voices from within the Palestinian community criticizing Hamas and saying, was it wise for Hamas to have taken that step um, on October 7th? Um, and it's all kind of, you know, very complicated because it's not so, I mean, like any anything <laughs> regarding human nature, it's not so simple. People are starting to criticize Hamas's military decisions on October 7. This is the Palestinians. But at the same time, a lot see in Hamas, you know, the only political representative that they have in Gaza. And that's why I'm saying the solution is diplomatic. The yeah. solution will always be can Palestinian factions be brought together to agree to form a coalition that would agree to rule Gaza and that Israel will be on board with? Israel so far is saying it's not on board with this scenario. And and I think this is a mistake. But for all those criticisms, is the polling or the uh, public opinion evidence that you've seen, what I've seen, that Hamas has gotten more popular since October 7th? Hamas has gotten a bit more popular since October 7th because people feel so angry and because people feel that they have no political alternative. But the majority still do not support Hamas, neither in the West Bank nor in Gaza. And that's something that we we need to bear in mind. And the same people, if given a political alternative to Hamas that is viable, I think would would you know a lot of them would uh, support that, and that's why it's important um, to pay attention to the to the um, Arab kind of peace uh, offer right now, which is to form a Palestinian coalition that would extend its rule over Gaza, and that would be under the legitimate representative of the Palestinians according to the international community, which is the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. If that dynamic of fighting in urban areas uh, and for every fighter, for every militant killed, perhaps two more are born based on uh, resentments, if that is the case here in Gaza, why did that not play out in Mosul? In Mosul, ISIS was very thin on the ground in terms of why people supported it. I have done a lot of work on ISIS. A lot of people supported ISIS because they would benefit financially from it rather than because they really believed in a cause. Some people believed in a cause, but those were not the majority. 
And that's why ISIS was able to be defeated militarily rather quickly. When it comes to the Palestinian situation, the Palestinian cause means a lot to a lot of people. Hamas has been able to take advantage of this, to present itself as a political representative for people in Gaza. But this is not the only uh, alternative uh, for Palestinians. There is another option, which is to have a two-state solution with the Palestinian Liberation Organization extending its rule over Gaza so that these same Palestinians feel that finally this fight is over, the fight to end the occupation is over. And this will deny Hamas any opportunity to take advantage of people's grievances to assert itself politically. Mm. Um, So I think for me, this is how you remove the rug from under the feet of Hamas. Lena Khatib is director of the SOAS Middle East Institute at SOAS University of London. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>